morning and welcome everyone to the FS17 session this morning. Just to make sure that no one is lost, it is the life insurance FS17 sessions. This morning we're going to have two presentations from, um, the first one is going to be from Jacques, Christian and MC, and um, it's going to be about getting grips with profits and revenue. And then after that I'll allow for a few set of questions and then we're going to have our second presentation from um, Michael and, and Tinius, and then I'll offer questions and answers after that. So over to you, um, Chris. Thanks, morning everyone. So when I saw that we were allocated the first slot of the convention, I thought, well, clearly the organizers are trying to help us a little bit and took pity on us wanting to do yet another presentation on IFRA 17. Um, or possibly took uh, pity on the audience that decided to attend yet another presentation on IFRA 17. So hopefully we won't need too much help to make it interesting. Um, the purpose of our talk really is to share with you what we thought the five or six most interesting observations or consequences are of the standard through being involved in a number of um, IFRA 17 projects over the last 18 months. So just to touch on the agenda briefly, before we go into observations and consequences, um, I'm going to quickly talk about what revenue means under IFRA 17, given firstly that it's quite a little bit different to what we used to, and secondly we thought that it will give good context for what's to follow, and then we'll finish by um, just briefly touching on some of the current hot topics that's being discussed um, with regards to the standards. Some of them actually as we speak, given that the International Accounting Standards Board is meeting um, currently to discuss many of these issues. So if you've had any involvement with IFRS 17, you'll know that while it's an accounting standard, there's going to be significant actuarial involvement needed for us to implement um, the standard. It may even um, mean that we have a situation where actuaries and accountants have to talk to each other and work together to be able to actually get, get this over the line. So um, one of our colleagues that can unfortunately not present um, because she's on crutches but sitting in front has coined the phrase um, accountaries as being the new profession needed to actually implement this. So given that we're moving from a standard where um, revenue is simply set equal to premiums um, for any given period to something that's seemingly a little bit more complex, a question like the following may be asked. So I've heard that actuaries are trying to take over the income statement and that this means that we have to calculate revenue. Is this true? So at first glance, as I said, revenue now looks complicated and it'll consist of four items. The allocation of the CSM, release of the risk adjustment, amortization of acquisition costs, and then incurred claims and expenses. So quite a mouthful and certainly more complex than just being equal to premiums. But is it, is it really that complicated? Does it make sense? So many of you would have attended conventions in the past, and when SAM was a hot topic, it seemed like no presentation on SAM would be complete without at least one slide showing the three pillars of SAM. 
Um, it seems like, similar to that, no self-respecting IFRA 17 presentation will be complete without showing some sort of cash flow profile with the building blocks of, of the standard. So if you focus on just the two equations at the bottom, um, you'll have the contractual service margin, which as you know is one of the new concepts um, under the standard, and it effectively represents the unearned profit in a particular policy. Um, and the intention of the standard then is really to take that CSM, spread it over the lifetime of the policy, as and when services are provided in line with coverage units, which is obviously another um, new concept in the standard. It's amazing how simple that sounds in theory. Then if you take that equation and you swap around the terms a little bit, you can express it as the PV of premiums equals CSM plus PV of benefits and expenses plus risk adjustment plus acquisition cash flows. Sorry, I see that the latest slides didn't make it to the pack, but um, anyway. Um, and what you need then, or what, what you should have then on the right-hand side of the equation are four, four terms that maps exactly back to the four elements of revenue um, that we just discussed. So in summary then, IFRS 4 sets revenue equal to premiums in any given period, whereas IFRS 17, there's a paragraph B120 of IFRS 17 states that revenue of the lifetime of the policy must equal to premiums over the lifetime of the policy. So the equation holds in both circumstances, but the key difference being that the profit recognition, the revenue recognition pattern and therefore the profit recognition pattern will look different um, in every reporting period, mainly due to how the CSM is allocated um, as and when services are provided in line with coverage units and as the um, risk, adju risk adjustment is released as the risk expires. Okay, and now we'll go into some of the interesting observations. All right. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, so maybe one of the first observations that we made um, was when we have to allocate the CSM, is you have to do this in line with coverage units, but do you discount these coverage units or not? Um, and basically, maybe a bit of background on the CSM is that every year it would grow with a type of interest. So whether it's under the general model or the variable fee approach, both versions have some type of, of adjustment for time value in them. So if you've got that, um, you would think that it'll make sense to discount your coverage units so that the coverage units is in line with the fact that you've got a type of discounted value there in the CSM. But the standard doesn't really care whether you discount or not. Um, so you can get quite different revenue patterns if you choose to do the one or the other. So, so basically there's two impacts. If you were to discount your coverage units, you would allocate your CSM rather quicker than if you didn't, which would mean that the size of your CSM is influenced and therefore the amount of interest that you'll be earning on the CSM is also influenced, at least on the general model. So it is interesting that the standard would allow you to do either, especially if we look at the next slide where we draw a little graph where if you look at the orange line, if you look at the orange line, then um, 
That is a, a simulation or like just a simulated CSM rundown, but where we used the exact same coverage units as for the blue line, but we didn't discount it. So you can see that the CSM is released uh, much slower and in fact sometimes even grows a little bit because it earns more interest than, than is allocated through the coverage units. So this is an observation, but I think um, uh, people would need to uh, figure out what makes sense for their revenue patterns. So almost uh, linking in a little bit to the previous observation is a consequence of the variable fee approach. So <clears throat> under the variable fee approach, your CSM doesn't earn interest in the way that I guess you can expect a liability to normally unwind for interest or earn interest. It actually uh, unlocks for interest or basically the unwinding of your RAND reserve and your risk adjustment. Now, the CSM could be uh, in size differ uh, quite a bit from, from the uh, RAND reserve and the risk adjustment or the variable fee, as, it, as it's going to be called. Um, and therefore, that the interest that the CSM, I want to say almost interest between brackets, that the CSM needs to earn will be uh, quite a bit, say, larger than you would expect the assets backing it to earn. Now, the consequence of this is that your, um, the, the finance expense or the fact that your liability, the CSM, grows, um, that it grows more than you can expect the assets backing that liability to grow at, it causes a little bit of a mismatch in your income statement where you need to uh, make a loss almost for financing and then to release that loss as a profit later on through the contract's life into revenue. So we again made a little slide to illustrate this. Um, so basically the one approach was just to show that if you accreted interest on the CSM as you would normally with a liability or effectively unwind it, the gray line there at the top, which is actually now, I guess, zero, that is the mismatch that you would, wouldn't expect to have a mismatch if the CSM and, and its assets were in line. Um, but, and, and then also you'll get this little yellow line releasing into revenue through the CSM. So the other two lines, the blue line and the orange line, the blue line is the mismatch that we've uh, modeled in this example to show that it, and it's on the secondary axis there, to show that there is a little bit of a, of a mismatch in this example coming through, but we do have higher revenue releases later on, which is the orange line being slightly higher than your yellow line. So this is a consequence, uh, but the consequence could be controlled through um, a good choice of coverage units so that your CSM runs down in a, in a pattern that you, well, would want it to run down in. Um, right, so this slide is something that came to us attention, uh, came to our attention quite recently, even though it was always kind of in the back of our minds. Now, the CSM unlocks for changes in experience. So basically, if you had, for example, more lapses in a period, the fact that you've now got less uh, fulfillment cash flows in the future, that impact needs to be absorbed in the CSM. 
Um, so basically, you, we, we are used to, when a policy, say, laps, that we would release its entire reserve, and whether that's a profit or loss, would come through in the period. Now, the CSM isn't a reserve that exists at a product level, it is a, a policy level, it's actually a reserve that exists at a group level, so a group of contracts together. And therefore, when one of them lapses, you won't actually see that a CSM related to that policy releases. It would still happen as, um, as the service is rendered under the group of contracts. So um, basically then, if you look at this graph that we drew, the... Um, <coughs> The blue line and the orange line represents how we expected the CSM and the bell to run down, so if uh, no variances ever occurred. And you can see from that it's running down smoothly. And then um, the uh, yellow line represents that we, uh, we just added a few lapses in that year, in year five, which dropped our positive reserve significantly, but we didn't release that as profit. We had to absorb it into the CSM, which represents the gray line, which then runs down over time. So I guess if you were to calculate something like a CSM per policy, it is a strange consequence, I guess, is that that number actually would increase if you have lapses occurring more than expected, um, or depending on the size of your reserve. This um, Anyway. So I think we might still have time to cover this. Um, so I think uh, we, yeah. So on reinsurance, we noticed that there's also different ways of, of treating the CSM for reinsurance contracts. So the idea of reinsurance is to, if the underlying contract uh, underlying the reinsurance has a CSM, you would unlock the reinsurance CSM if there's changes in the reinsurance performance cash flows. So this is not to cause a mismatch in your income statement, so that if, if the underlying contract goes into a CSM, uh, the reinsurance also does. Um, and I guess similarly, if the underlying contract did not have a CSM, so it was in a loss-making position, you would not um, absorb any fulfillment cash flows on the reinsurance changing inside the reinsurance CSM. You would actually um, release that into profit and loss in that year as well, so you get the offsetting impact or the benefit of having reinsurance. Now, it isn't clear in the standard whether you should be uh, considering, say, the order of your analysis for determining whether the underlying contract has a CSM or not. So during uh, your analysis process, you can have uh, analyze the mortality or lapse or expense or assumption changes, all sorts of stuff, in, and uh, you could potentially have a stepwise analysis then of the CSM. And then after a few um, analysis lines, you'll maybe run into a loss component, and maybe later on you'll get a CSM again. And uh, so, so you could analyze it like that. Um, and what that means for the reinsurance is a bit complicated, because now do you decide how to unlock the reinsurance based on, on that uh, analysis step, whether there was a CSM on the underlying contract or not? So to illustrate what this could uh, result in, 
is we, uh, we set up this little example with just made up numbers and three impacts um, after uh, our expected closing bell. So basically we show there our expected closing bell for the underlying contracts was a negative reserve of 200 and our reinsurance had fulfillment cash flows of 100. Um, then we have, have the three impacts, each having some having an increasing impact on our underlying and one having a, a, a good impact or a negative, increasing our negative reserve impact. And uh, similarly, um, two of the impacts actually in, impacted our reinsurance as well. So you can almost think of impact three or the one that didn't have a reinsurance impact as like an expense uh, type of an assumption change or something like that. So then we show what would happen on the CSM if we were to care about run order for our uh, impacts and assessment whether the reinsurance should unlock or not. So we've got a little accretion line, which is not too important, but then we've got, uh, we are actually analyzing it as impact three, two, and one in our analysis and you'll see that the signs are reversed from what we had in the bell. And basically the CSM stays positive and reduces and then becomes uh, zero. It would actually go negative because you'll see it's 30 year, but a minus 35 impact, but your CSM cannot go negative on the underlying contracts. So it gets put to zero. So what will happen then on the, um, on the reinsurance side is that you have a uh, also uh, accretion, but then no impact for impact three because it had no impact on the fulfillment cash flows. 35 Rand and 15 Rand, the 15 Rand is a scaled version of the 18 Rand, the proportion being 30 over 35, uh, which we think is an appropriate way to, to then unlock for that change. Um, but then you see you end up with a CSM on the reinsurance contract of a positive 27. So we expect some profits on the reinsurance contract where it was a loss initially. So if we were to just switch around the impacts and we would first analyze impact one, two, and then three, without going through all the steps again, you would see that impact one now already makes our entire CSM zero. And therefore, um, only the first impact would get um, allocated to the reinsurance CSM. So the 18 rand, 18 rand impact there can go into reinsurance. But thereafter, because the CSM is zero on the underlying, we cannot put anything else in, and we end up with a negative six rand CSM on the reinsurance contract, which you'll see is obviously much different from the 27, just because we had a different order. Um, the other uh, approach would be completely agnostic of your run order, and this is approach three, which we have as a proportional impact, basically. So here we don't care about run order at all or whether um, certain impacts are on. We, we will add up all the impacts on the underlying contract um, and consider how big was the CSM that we had. So that's what we show in the gray block on the side. Basically, we had a CSM of 35 Rand after accretion. 
but we had to unlock it for 40 rand or decrease it for 40 rand in total. So we were only able to absorb 88% of our uh, fulfillment cash flow impacts on the underlying contracts into its CSM. And therefore, each of the impacts uh, that the reinsurance fulfillment cash flows had, the 18 and the 35, we will only allocate 88% of those to the reinsurance contract. And then we have a 23 Rand CSM at the end. So you can see that this would obviously not depend on the run order, um, but would have maybe other imp impacts when it comes to the income statement, because now you would need to send a different number to the income statement to be recognized immediately for the reinsurance, and, but we didn't have time to go into that as well. Right. The last impact that we want to discuss today um, I think is more of an observation, and it deals with the option that's allowed in the standard to disaggregate finance income or expenses between profit and loss and other comprehensive income, where finance income or expenses um, in your income statement just re represents the effect of time value of money and financial risk and changes in those. The intention of this option to disaggregate is to allow smoothing or smooth recognition of finance income or expenses in profit and loss and the remaining balances being recognized in other comprehensive income. Products where this might be of use is, for example, a risk product where you have a large negative liability and the impact of changes in economic assumptions isn't offset by an impact on investment income on assets backing your liabilities. So if we assume for a moment that the only um, source of finance income or expenses is unwind in our liabilities um, and the changes in discount rates, then the standard provides a clear systematic allocation of finance income or expenses if the OCR choice is taken. What would be recognized in PNL is finance income or expenses at the rates that applied at inception of a contract, what we call locked-in rates, and that would be the unwind in your balance risk adjustment and the accretion of interest on your CSM at locked-in rates. OCI, therefore, represents the effect of changes in economic assumptions or discount rates for now, and the reversing effect in subsequent periods of higher or lower unwind um, as that reverses out. That provides two useful things. The first one is a smooth recognition of um, finance income expenses in PL. And the second one is a natural way where the future unwind reverses the impact of the change in economic assumptions in OCI, running the OCI balance down to zero, which the standard requires. However, the standard says that the CSM shouldn't be unlocked for changes in assumptions relating to financial risk. It could therefore be argued that you shouldn't unlock the CSM for changes in inflation rates. What that means is that project changes in projected nominal cash flows would flow to finance income or expenses and could therefore influence our OCI systematic allocation. That method that we described first in just recognizing finance income expenses as locked-in rates in PNL wouldn't work as that effect of the high or lower unwind in future periods in OCI not reversing 
the effect of changes in nominal cash flows that we projected. So your OCI balance doesn't run down to zero. The standard deals with this though. It provides a different systematic allocation and it says that we can allocate the revised finance income or expenses to P&R at a constant rate. That is good in that um, it definitely allows the OCI balance to run down to zero, but the question is whether it actually allows the smoothing effect that was intended with OCI. We tried to illustrate it with the graph um, showing three different systematic allocations. The orange line at the bottom is the locked-in approach that I first described that would work if only discount rates changed. But you can see here where we made a change in discount rates and inflation rates at year one. We only recognized negative finance income or expenses in OCI in all subsequent periods, and therefore the balance can't run down to zero. The yellow line is the constant rate method that I first described, as illustrated in the um, illustrative examples um, that support the standard. You'll see, however, um, that systematic allocation, which says that we must allocate the revised finance income or expenses at a rate that's constant and compare that rate against the original constant rate of your group. Um, effectively just acts to delay the impact in PNL. So you'll see that there's no impact in the first year, but then in the second year, you take the full knock through PNL. And therefore, that method doesn't allow any smoothing or very little smoothing um, over the lifetime of the contract for the impact of changes in inflation rates. The last line that we showed is a different interpretation of the systematic allocation where you don't compare the constant rate um, after the economic assumption change to the original constant rate, but to the constant rate that applied at the most recent economic assumption change that you made. That does allow for some smoothing. As you'll see, there's a much more stable balance recognized in OCI, or finance income expense recognized, but it's not in line with the illustrative examples um, that support the standard, and it might have adverse effects if you use a yield curve, even if um, there are no economic assumption changes or inflation rate changes. So this observation um, just shows that OCI might not have the smoothing effect um, that was originally intended um, with the option. Independently of all the cons um, considerations and observations that we showed today, there's been a lot of industry discussions um, and communication that have happened that have also um, potentially brought the current status um, or at least form of the standard um, into question and made it uncertain whether that would be the um, form of the standard on the effective date. This was mainly driven by the European Financial Re Reporting Advisory Group, or the EFRAG, um, as part of the endorsement process of IFRS 17 for the European Union. And it was a lot of their concerns were detailed in the letter to the ISB. What I've um, summarized here is a subsequent letter that the ISB staff submitted to the ISB board for discussion in the meeting today and tomorrow that Chris mentioned. And I think these are some of the key um, considerations or concerns that they felt needed to be addressed um, that could influence current implementation programs. I'll run through them very briefly. Um, the first one is whether the use of co 
cohorting for VFA contracts provides useful accounting information um, and whether you need cohorts at all for VFA contracts. The second one was a concern that was raised that the very prescribed modifications available on transition is too limiting and whether the ISB should consider making a principles-based approach which might um, provide more scope for using modify modifications. The third one is twofold, um, but spoke about consistency across entities, um, where analysts felt that having the OCI choice, which we just described, and the choice around transition approaches that are applied across an entity, um, they currently at a group level, so you could decide at a group level, and they felt that it might be um, more consistent to make that an entity level choice. The fourth one is a disclosure consideration where the standard currently requires that you disclose asset contracts that are assets and liabilities separately in, for example, liability reconciliation tables. And they felt that that might not provide useful information, so it could change how we need to, um, at which level of granularity we need to disclose. And the last one um, was a point around currently how the standard stands you could have accounting mismatches between insurance contracts that are onerous at initial recognition, so that have a loss component, and reinsurance contracts that have a net gain, where the pre prior um, should be recognized in PNL immediately, and the latter would go into your CSM because the reinsurance CSM could be positive or negative, and they're considering whether that um, should be amended to avoid that mismatch. Lastly, um, perhaps the most important, is a discussion around whether they should consider um, a deferral of the standard's effective date. Um, but I think we await the meeting and possibly future meetings to have more clarity on that. Thanks. Great. Thanks, gentlemen. And before we go to our next uh, presentation, can I just ask if there are any uh, questions that you may have for our guests and our speakers? Sorry. Of course, uh, can we get the mic here in the front? Any, uh, any other questions? Okay, we've got two questions this side. Okay, if you can just state your name and possibly who you're addressing the question, if not to everyone. Thanks, I'm, I'm Jacques Mant from MMI. I don't want to address the question to anyone in particular, but any one of them can answer. Um, maybe one observation and, and one question. I think both the examples relating to reinsurance as well as relating to the um, finance, interest, income and expense on VFA actually um, point to... to um, uh, I think the work you've done is, is, is nice and neat, um, <clears throat> but the conclusion may be slightly different. Um, in, in both cases, you can actually use that very same information to demonstrate that a literal reading of the standard is, is, is not a sufficient approach. You know, one should actually not just literally apply the standard, and the very same thing applies to some of those topics that Ifrag have mentioned as well. My question to you, as both in, in a advisory or audit capacity, how do you balance, how do you bring some pragmatism to the table, um, especially if you think about those questions that IFAG raised 
when you speak to the ISB board members, they'd, they'd easily say this is not um, what they've intended or uh, guys are reading the, the standard too literally. And that's verbal comments from ISB board members. How do you guys, as actuaries and practitioners in this in this space, bring some some pragmatism to the table? Thanks, Jack. Um, so, uh, I guess a couple of things. So, the first thing is, as you know, it's, it, the standard is principles based as opposed to rules based, which makes it both easier and harder to either implement or to as auditors to audit. Um, if it was rules-based, then it's it's a lot more lot more black and white. But if it's given that it's principles-based, it does give you a little bit more flex. So the um, the thing to remember, as I may have mentioned to you before, is that we we don't we don't necessarily make the rules as the auditors. Um, so, but there there are things that that is that is pretty clear, and they they. You can simply, and all you can do is actually go and implement implement that. There are some other structures um, that's been put in place to clarify many of the, the items. So the TRG would be one thing, and the TRG has clarified um, quite a few of um, the questions that that practitioners had. The second would be that there's there will be industry practice that will revolve around some of these things. Um, and then there's the meetings that's currently taking place. If you've read the, the notes that were sent out by the staff prior to the meeting, you would have seen that on some of, on some of the items, they are very clear that this is what it actually intended and we're gonna to stick to this. Whereas on other things, like for example, the insurance, I think they were a little bit, little bit more um, flexible in, in terms of their wording, which to me suggests that they would be would be um, open to possibly changing it. But as MC said, we will we await the, fee, the closing of the meeting with bated breath come end of tomorrow. Um, and hopefully it does provide a little bit more clarity around the issues. Uh, we have another question this side. Thanks. Um, I think maybe just following up on what Yak said, I mean, one item in particular last week that the, the vice chair of the um, ISB uh, mentioned was in particular around uh, modified retrospective. And I think they were, well, I mean, I, I, in the terms of the standard, there's sort of specific things that are allowable in terms of modified retrospective, or it seems like that. And she was quite surprised at how literal a view had been taken on what was allowable. And in principle, the whole idea is you know, a best efforts basis to try and retrospectively state where your company is. And yes, they give some guidelines around what that might be, but she was quite surprised at how literal some people had been reading that portion of the standard. So I think that's just sort of backing up Yuck's point. And yeah, I mean, I suppose that's, that's just something that needs to be considered. It's quite difficult where you've got a definitive standard, but then people are, you know, there's a principle behind it as well. And what sort of takes power of the other. Uh, thanks, Brendan. Yeah, I think um, it's a very good point. Um, don't want to reiterate what Chris said, but I think that example um, specifically, the standard, even though it was principles-based, um, something like the permissible modifications have been written in such a clear um, wording, perhaps unintentionally. And I think on some of those, the 
ISB staff, staff at least, in their commentary, are open to where they think it's sensible and where the intention wasn't to have a set rule of permissible modifications, but a more principles-based approach, I think um, there would potentially um, be scope for them amending it. And I think a lot of those, that one specifically, I think they were very open to adjusting. And it talks to, I think, them having one set of principles-based um, approach for modified retrospectives explicitly. Yeah. yeah, and I think just maybe to add to that, um, you have to also remember just the, why, why did, did the ISB decide that a new standard is needed for insurance? And the key thing that keeps on coming up in every discussion where the ISB is involved is that they're trying to drive consistency. So you're always going to have this balance between um, being fairly open and flexible and principles-based versus actually having consistency. If, if, if the end result of this isn't some form of consistency, then uh, the 20 years' worth of development for the standard would have not really been um, particularly useful, I don't think. Is the last question I can take? Okay, I've got one side, center. Hi. So on that point you just made, um, they're aiming for consistency, and my understanding of a reporting thing is to help people who look at the results understand what's going on and when you earn things. Given how much you've engaged with it and what you've seen so far and these little places where people can make decisions, what's your view at the moment of, is it, do you think it's going to succeed? Are we going to have better understanding of it, being able to get better understanding of its results? Is it going to be consistent, or are these decisions that individual companies are going to make going to make uh, to companies incomparable? So, not a hard question at all. Um, I think it's, it's uh, like the answer to most good questions, is it depends. Um, it depends which of the elements you, you look at, because there's certainly elements of the standard where you get a lot more information. And what you need to remember is a lot of focus in companies have gone into actually how will you calculate the CSM and how will your how will you put the whole thing together um, to work on top of your current current systems, or do you do you build a new system? But if you actually go and you look at the disclosures that's required, um, there is a lot of very useful information that I think um, analysts will find very very useful. Something like the the item that that the EFRAG has written about the whole thing about co-working, especially with regards to VFA, that's something where even in the the, the um, notes that were sent out prior to this ISB meeting, the staff still says, well, it's there because it creates better information. But no one that you speak to in the market agrees with that currently. So there, there is obviously a range, a range of views. It's the variable fee approach, which is one of the um, one of effectively the three measurement models um, under the under the standard. Um, so the general model will deal mostly with risk products. The VFA will deal with investment products um, more, more generally, and then you've got the PAA, which will deal with shorter term products, just in roughly.
Um, clearly, it seems that we're still going to have a bit more evolution in terms of the discussions, um, especially with the more information that may come out from the meeting today. Um, but that being said, thanks, uh, gentlemen. And can I just uh, ask uh, Theans and uh, Michael to join me on the podium for the second set of presentations on the operating environment now from the insurance point of view? Thank you. Thanks, guys. Michael?